Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Today's guest was Emma Welsh, the CEO and co-founder of Emma and Tom's Foods, who provide premium juices, kombucha, snacks, and natural-flavoured milk with no added sugar. Emma started her career with a Bachelor of Agricultural Science and worked for a number of well-respected global brands, including Cargill and Mars as a buyer of produce. She then completed her MBA at INSEAD in France before having a stint in management consulting and with National Australia Bank. In 2003, with her childhood friend, Tom Griffiths, she started Emma and Tom's. And at that point, they just marketed premium juices to cafes and delis around Australia. They built their range of healthy foods up and now are stocked in 5,000 venues. And because of that, they were obviously severely impacted by the COVID crisis. They had to make some hard decisions early on, but always strive to do the right thing by their people. Both Emma and Tom strongly believe in the importance of business contributing positively to the community. And because of this, they turned their organization into a B Corp. Now, this is an independent accreditation, which shows that the organizations contribute positively to their employees, to their customers, to their suppliers, and to society as a whole. Emma is also the country director of a not-for-profit called Think Equal, a very interesting organization that teaches young children how to improve social and emotional intelligence. And isn't that incredibly important right now? Emma is a businesswoman who wants to improve society. And I know that you'll enjoy her caring and common sense approach to leadership. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to welcome Emma Welsh to the show. Welcome, Emma. Hi, Graham. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Emma, what does care in the workplace mean to you? I think uh, for me, being caring is treating people with respect. I think um, everyone deserves to be treated with respect um, and and to treat each other with respect. Um, I think uh, people. Um, should be valued as individuals, but also I think they need to be there at work to deliver and to perform, um, and and that needs to be and to be clear. And actually, I think it's caring to being to making it clear when they are performing and when they're not performing. Um, so to me, it's um, it's a combination of, of things, but honesty, transparency, and respect is is fundamental to it. You uh, co-founded Emma and Tom's back in 2003. Can you, just for our listeners, can you give a bit of an overview of what, what got you there? <laughs> yeah, so my, my business partner, Tom, and I, um, uh, you know, it, was, it actually was Tom's idea. So Tom, Tom had been um, travelling in North America and drinking green smoothies and thinking they were absolutely wonderful. And he came back to Australia and and suggested to me that um, there was a business opportunity um, in creating green smoothies. And so 
um, we started looking at this idea together and um, we looked at other examples of companies around the world who had started these sorts of businesses and there was quite a few. Um, but there was they're all small companies that hadn't the the products hadn't been developed by the the major multinationals that we're all very familiar with. Um, it was all small companies that had started up. So um, we thought, well, you know, maybe there's an opportunity for us to do the same thing in Australia. Um, and we basically started following our noses and and developing the business. And now, 17 years later, here we are. Yeah. And uh, you worked in other companies prior to starting it. Um, what were some of the key places you worked at where you learned some important things which were relevant for your own business? Yeah, I did at, at university, I did a course called Agricultural Science at Melbourne Uni. Um, and I chose that course because there was a little bit of everything in it. So I think I've, I am a generalist. I've, I like to do, uh, do different things. Um, but I decided pretty early on or actually at the end of that course that I actually didn't want to be a scientist because um, while scientists discover fantastic, amazing things, I, I found the process, um, well, my experience had been in the soil science lab, so I hadn't found the process particularly exciting, mixing up <laughs> samples of soil. Um, so I decided I wanted to be a commodity trader and I applied to a couple of different commodity trading companies and, and got my first job with Cargill as a, not as a commodity trader, as a um, as a financial markets trader. So my first ever job, I was trading the Australian do- dollar and basically betting whether it was going to go up or down. Right. Um, which, as a as a twenty twenty four year old out of uni, was I didn't really think it was a real job, but it was, um, you know, that was my first job. <laughs> and what were some of the other places you worked that uh, you know you learned some valuable lessons? So um, Cargill, I mean, I actually, I then moved, I did move into the grain trading area after a while and um, that was a, a great experience and I, I travelled all around Australia, um, central Queensland, um, into the Brisbane Valley, um, buying all sorts of different things and dealing with farmers and learning, um, you know, that people, the farmers were very similar wherever you went in Australia and um, and whether they were very successful ones or very not so successful. Um, you know, they were all at the mercy of the weather. Um, they were all suffering the cost price squeeze. Um, and learning to talk to different people, I think, um, was and, and they were and in my experience was always that, you know, I was a, a young girl at that time. Um, and I was always treated with respect and um and I think it was because I had information that was valuable to them and they were interested in in what I what I had to talk because I was basically bringing them information about the markets and prices which was relevant to them um i so i was with cargill after cargill i went i was i'd actually been selling grain to uncle ben's which is part of the mars corporation in albury wodonga and at one stage they asked me if i'd like to go and buy grain for them um and so that uh, that started a five-year journey with them and i i went, wanted to go to mars because i wanted to get experience in in sales and marketing and and move out of more the, the commodity trading area because by that stage I had decided that I, I one day I would like to have my own business and so I was thinking I wanted to get lots of experience in different areas of business. So I saw Mars as sales and marketing um, uh, and I had a very interesting career at Mars but because I was sort of a specialist, I, I didn't manage to get into the into the marketing area which is where I wanted to get into but I did manage to go into the fish buying area and ended up in Namibia buying frozen fish and um, uh, chili and um, California and uh, <laughs> southern Thailand 
Um, so that was a it was a, a, a good job and inter- and, and I was one. Of, you know, I was in China in 1992 buying vitamins and and amino acids just as they were opening up. So it was a fantastic experience. And again, you're know, learning to talk to lots of different people, different cultures, um, and and understanding how how things worked in different parts of the world and learning a lot from different different people. I had great bosses at at um, at both at Cargill and Mars. Um, and but after five years at Mars, I decided that I wanted to do an MBA, and, and I applied to a school in um, a university in France called INSEAD, and I then went and spent a year uh, doing an MBA there. And after that year, I spent um, uh, a year as a strategy consultant in London with a firm called LEK Consulting, which was a an excellent firm, and. Um, uh, I, I learned how, how hard you really have to work as a consultant and <laughs> two projects at one time. So uh, it was sort of double hard. Um, and it's a, it's a very big commitment to choose to do MBA, not to mention expense. And INSEAD's a really top place to get the MBA. You know, I've heard of a lot of um, management consultants that did it there. Why did you think that was important for you to do at that stage of your career? Um I, I wanted to, um, I guess, you know, get get experience in. I mean, I'd, I'd basically been a commodity trader and and on the commercial side, the buying side. So I just wanted to um, learn about other the other parts of the business, you know, sales, marketing, finance, operations. Um, and because I'd worked for two American companies by that stage, I just um, I didn't want to go to America, and I thought that uh, INSEAD was the best school to go to in in Europe. So that's why I chose that. Yeah, and uh, and then you made the decision to start Emma and Tom's, <laughs> and you mentioned it was uh, it was originally Tom's idea. Did he give, just give you a call and say, "I think we should do this"? Pretty much. He, I mean, we'd we'd been friends um, for years. We actually met each other when we were um, twelve year old, the sw- doing swimming squad at the um, Harold Holt Pool in Melbourne, um, and. And we'd just known each other for years. I mean, we're, we're not life partners. People, it's always the first question everyone wants to know the answer to. Um, but we, we'd been friends and we used to, in London, he was actually living in London at the same time I was in London and we'd catch up for, for drinks every now and again and um, do things together. And, um, uh, yeah, I, I'd come back to Australia and I was actually working at the National Australia Bank by that stage and he, he just rang me up one day and said, I've got this idea. And, I said, oh, what is it? What is it? And he said, well, I can't, I can't tell you over the phone. I've got to come and see you. And so we, we then he, he, we went and met up and um, discussed it and then drove around um, Carlton and uh, Paran and different places looking at fridges and seeing what they had in the fridge and deciding that there was an opportunity. Excellent. And um, how long was it from that initial discussion to when you bit the bullet and started the business? Uh, it was about a year. We thought it was going to be three months, and it actually took about a year. <laughs> and what were the surprises along the way? Like you've been with, uh, you know, a number of different businesses in different areas, but starting your own business is, uh, you know, another thing again. Ironically, I think Mars is actually a family business, isn't it? Yeah. But a very, la- but a very large family business. Yeah. Looking back, what did you not anticipate what were the surprises for you um i mean i think it, it's it's good to mention that you mentioned mars because you know they're a massive family business as as is cargill actually and at the time when i was working for them i mean i was relatively junior and 
the, I mean, I met personally um, both all of them, John Forrest and Jackie Mars, and, and presented to them. So, I mean, that was my experience of a business owner. They 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 were hands on, they were hardworking, and they were um, you know they were interested in the business, and they and they certainly weren't superior and distant to um, to the business. Um, so. So that was that. I, I think that did form my attitude to how a business owner should 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 be, and and the same with Cargill. I mean, the owners of Cargill were, you know, Whitney McMillan was the chairman at the time, and he was a family member. When I first joined in my first ever year, and I, I remember, you know, standing at a bar and we were all having out drinks, having drinks with Whitney McMillan. Um, but uh, yeah, to your question about um, the surprises, I think, um, I mean. The disadvantage of having worked in in big corporates was that um, you know I wasn't as in tune with the importance of of cash and cash flow and profitability and and I'd been more exposed to divisions. So, so even though I'd done an MBA and intellectually knew knew the importance of it, um, I don't think I really you know it's only now that I really really understand the importance of it. And you know, you've got to have more cash coming in than you've got going out. And, and also the, the decision that as an entrepreneur um, everyone makes and, and I think um, not necessarily everyone makes as deliberately as they probably should is um, you, you either start the business, in my view now, um, to be self-funded and to bootstrap or you start it to be um, private equity funded and to be um, uh, to be high, a high-growth business. And and I think we sort of fell a bit in the middle. We we weren't clearly doing one or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and we and and if you're if you're bootstrapping and, and uh, self funding it, to me, you have to absolutely be single mindedly focused on on cash flow and, and um, profitable growth. Whereas if you're private equity funded, you're you're much more focused on just top line growth, and you've got to hit that thirty five percent year on year as a minimum. And when you were when we were talking before we. Um start of the interview, you mentioned that, you know, you built it up to 50 employees and uh, how important was building the right culture? I think, um, you know, I mean, we've, it's been difficult for us building culture because we've had teams in, um, in, in four different offices around the country. Um, but the, the thing that was, well, the, probably the person that was the glue that held it together was actually my husband, Michael, who joined us um, after about four years, when we decided to start doing our own distribution and having our own people on the road, because the first few years we actually just used distributors, mm-hmm. um, but but he was that he's that salesperson that just got out, travelled, 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 knocked on doors, and was the glue that that created that sort of family culture. And I think we have created a family culture. But he was the person that was travelling around and spending time. With the teams and and his approach to to leadership is, is you know he sees his job is 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 the servant leader they call it I mean to, he, yeah. he he sees his role is to help help the team yeah um, and so he would be out you know be up the earliest be you know like they're the latest and if a customer wanted something um, you know he would be the, the first one to do it um, but the difficulty for me in being married I mean the, the, typically the role of the um, you know the, the 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 CEO and the sales director, which is effectively what we became, is not necessarily an easy one. So, <laughs> um, you know, we, we we're a family business. We had a, fa- a family type culture, but we also had family type issues as well. And it's uh, it can be very challenging. I know my brother and sister in law. They, funnily enough, um, 
started a, a health food business as well, which was distributed through Coles and Woolworths and the various places. And uh, they just found it was very, very difficult to switch off at night, you know, to, to really go from business to personal and, and not, you know, let it interrupt too much. Did you ever find a good way of doing that? Well, just not to talk about it is the best way. <laughs> yeah. No, my, my, I mean, probably, I mean, my my preference is not to talk about it, not to think about it, and Michael's was probably more to talk about it and think about it, but we found that we were better not to talk about it. Right, right, yeah. And, and also to, to a large degree we found it was much better to be, you know, he, he had his area of the business that he looked after and I looked after my business, my area, and we, we too, you know, to a large degree, kept separate but I think it you know from a business point of view it probably did mean that we we weren't making some of the tough decisions we needed to be because you know I'd made a decision right from the start when we started working together that I didn't want to end up divorced over this so yeah luckily I'm not (laughs) and how did you go about the the product development side of things you started off with premium juices was that um that was the main part for a long time? Yeah, so we, the first idea with the business was to create a, a super premium fruit juice business or smoothie business. Um, and so we looked at the products that were around the world and there was, you know, Happy Planet and Innocent Drinks in the UK and Odd Waller and there was quite a, a number of them and all of them had their recipes on the bottle so we could we could see what, you know, what the, uh, the blends were. Um, but Tom and I went to, the, went to the Pran Market and bought boxes of fruits and, took them home to our kitchens and with our juices and blended things up and, and made delicious tasting mixes. Um, and, and so that that was sort of the first stage, but then we had to commercialise it. And so then we'd go and buy commercial mango or commercial pineapple and, and make it up to the same recipe and it would just taste terrible. Um, and then we realised that actually, you know, there was we had put a lot of effort into the sourcing of the quality of the fruit because not all mango tastes the same. Yeah. Um, and it's how it's processed. I mean, it was from my fish buying days, I knew that, you know, a fish swimming around the sea is, is fresh and, and perfect. It's how you handle it from catching it. And it's exactly the same with a fruit piece of fruit. Um, you know, a piece of fruit when it's ripe and perfect is great. But if you overcook it or you let it go become overripe or rotten, uh, you know, <laughs> or it's not ripe enough, um, you know, it doesn't taste any good. Yeah. Uh, you had uh, built the business up. You mentioned that you built it up to 50 people and you had, I think, over 3,000 outlets. So it would seem like a very um, very safe business at that stage. And then COVID happened and, uh, you know, suddenly there was a crisis in the hospitality industry. What was that like to manage a business that virtually depended on that wholly? Yeah, no, it was a... It was a, a bolt from the blue. I mean, we we sort of got a sniff that things were going bad in in January 2020 when you know, obviously we could see what was happening in China. Um, but uh, us, I mean, we we believed that we had a very um, uh, very risk protected business in that we had a, a very wide customer base. Um, we we weren't um, and we were selling all, all across the country, so. You know the 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 way that the industry shut down. So we were basically selling to the food service industry, so the cafes, delis, hospitals, schools, corporate offices, um, a little bit into the supermarket um, uh, convenience fridges, um, but they were mostly in the CBDs. And so we, I mean, basically in in March uh, 2020, I mean, our sales went down by around about eighty percent overnight. Wow. Um, so you know, it was it was just unbelievable 
and everyone was saying, oh, well, you know, it, it won't be long, it'll just be a couple of months, and, and, we, and we went along believing that. But, I mean, the, the government, the speed with which they introduced the JobKeeper um, and the way that was, was managed and, and the way they effectively outsourced Centrelink to, to the corporate world um, was, I, I think, a brilliant, brilliant way of doing it. And I know a lot of people complain that they think the government wasted a lot of money, but I think it, um, you know, certainly for businesses like ours, it was, um, it was a lifesaver. And where you had, uh, you know, I guess the two key earners uh, in the same organisation, how, how did you handle that from a, a family perspective? Um, it's hard even to think back at the time, I and mean, I think we were just in such panic mode. Mm. Um, but gradually, I mean, as as it sort of became apparent that it was going to be a long road and not not just be a matter of a few months, um, eventually, when we, we basically we just we had to reduce our our, our costs so much. Um, and I mean, some of our staff, you know, they were they went home to you know we had one person went home to to Colombia, some go back to France to France. So people did did leave. Um, and then the JobKeeper obviously was supporting supporting people a lot while that was was there. So they were, you know, we had reduced their hours, but they were getting paid by the, the JobKeeper. Um, so then, um, but with Michael, he, I mean, ultimately he ended up um, uh, leaving the business, and and um, you know we've got a, a house on Norfolk Island that he's is his um, project that he's basically busily working away on trying to get it up ready for rental so um that's uh that's really his his um his main activity so we, we use as an opportunity i guess for him to refocus into another area which is his you know he's passionate about and um and it just left me running the business and, and you know making it a very thrifty but thriftily run business was there any silver lining for you in the whole pandemic even as it plays out now yeah, no, and I think I think it made us look at the business and 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 run the business much better. I mean, we we'd probably been um, you know overservicing some of the customers. Uh, we had too many products. Um, we just weren't efficient enough, and so we we've really we've streamlined the business, and in streamlining it, we've made it a much easier business to run. I mean, um, you know, we had warehouses that were just overflowing with stock, and we couldn't. We were thinking, oh, we need bigger warehouses, but. Um, in reducing the number of different um, uh, product lines we had, I mean, our sales haven't haven't gone down. I mean, we're selling selling just as much, but selling more of um, of a fewer number of items, which is obviously much better from an inventory point of view. Um, and from the van efficiency point of view, it's much better because it's much easier for the for our team members to be getting stock, <laughs> you know, less numbers of stock out of out of the vans. Um, so it's just less complicated. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. 
And the third resource is a building a mentally healthy culture checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. I read in some of your background that you decided to make your business a B Corp. Would you mind just explaining to our listeners what that is and why you made that decision? Yeah, so this uh, uh, this was Tom's um, uh, yeah, passion project. I mean, he really believed in it and um, and really led led the charge on it. But a B Corp is a, a beneficial corporation, is what it stands for, and it's basically the idea is that it's corporations that are doing good. So it's a not for profit organisation that was set up in the in the US, um, and the idea is to get companies to to register themselves and you have to go through quite an extensive registration process um, to qualify as a B Corp Um, and then and then those corporations look to to to, I guess do more together and to help each other and to and to help the for the world move forward um, particularly around sustainability but but you know in in doing doing good so you know things like with us I mean our bottles square so that's a very efficient um, efficient pack size we have you know, um, you know uh, recycling collections for all different types of waste that we pay extra for in in all our warehouses, so we can click, collect our uh, soft plastics and they're recycled um, as well. So th- there's a lot of stuff that we do that, um, you know, and, and that was all all the things that you know then made us eligible to be a big B corporation. And how long have you been operating as a B corp now? Uh, it's about uh, five years, I think. Right, right. Because uh, I've heard other people describe that it's a lot of work to, you know, go through the accreditation process. Um, did you find that was there a fair bit of investment in time to get to that to get it to that status? Yeah, well, I mean, as I said, Tom Tom was the one who led the charge on that, but it, yeah, I think it was a lot of work. Yeah, and we we were one of the first ones to in Australia to uh, to to go through the process. Does it become easier as time goes on? <laughs> uh, what the B Corp registration or business in general? Well, keeping B Corp, you know, keeping the B Corp status, and uh... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think once you're registered, then it, then it's it's just a, an annual registration checkup. But that's um, yeah, it, it, it's the first stage is that is the hard one. So it sounds like you played a real primary role with Tom to help get your group through this very very stressful time. Um, what are some of the things that you you did to help facilitate that? Um, I mean, because we've all been well, we've we've had sort of two groups of people in the business. We've had the people that are um, doing the deliveries to the to the cafes that were open and, and you know are doing the the takeaway. Um, and you know, as schools some were open for a little bit and then shut, so we've had the people doing the deliveries, and we had to, um, I guess, right from the start, think through all the and make COVID plans for for all of our um, operations and make sure that. Uh, we were keeping people apart to the extent that we could. That if we did have anyone get um, get the virus, that we weren't going to send shut down our whole you know state based operation. So there was a lot of practical things that we we did, and we we um, and I think we we did a good job right from the start of involving everyone in, in thinking through all the things that could happen and and um, having people own different parts of it. So for example, we yeah you know, we had 
delivery drivers would we scheduled the delivery drivers so that people didn't come at the same time and and when the the person in the warehouse who helps them load the van they would load from opposite sides of the van so just practical things like that um and and then then we had people who were working from home who could no longer come to the office so we've we've always had a weekly um team meetings but but i think talking i mean we, we speak to each other on the phone all the time um and um you know, uh, I think, and and to your, you know, your, are you okay? I mean, I think asking people, you know, are they okay, and 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 hearing them, and we've had mostly people. I mean, it's only in the last few months we've had some people starting to really have some quite serious, um, not so much mental health issues, but you know, particularly family issues. You know, mm. physically physical illnesses with different family members, and. Um, you know, that's meant that they've either had to leave the business or, or take very significant sick leave. Um, and we, we just have to, I mean, we obviously have to work with, with people around it. But we've had one guy in, in uh, Western Australia who um, we've been able to support into a new career in IT. Um, he, he got to the stage where physically this, the job that we had wasn't for him. Um, and so he's, he's now just actually... This week got another job, um, but he's been fantastic. So he said uh, to the other job, he, he can't start for two weeks because he, he's still covering for our manager over there who's on leave herself. Um, so I think it's been a very – there's a lot of reciprocity yeah. um, in that, you know, he, he recognises that we've helped and cared for him and so he he's helped by, you know, giving us another two weeks before he, he exits. <laughs> Part of um... – B Corp is, you know, wanting to create a better world. And when we spoke um, earlier, you mentioned um, Think Equal, which is uh, something you're really passionate about. Can you uh, just explain to the listeners how you first heard about it and what was it that really captured you about the um, about that charity? Thank you. Yeah, so Think Equal um, is a, an educational program um, teaching social and emotional intelligence and, and competency skills to three, four and five-year-old children. Um, so it's a program that's designed to be taught in, in the kindergarten classroom um, and it's taught through a series of books, stories, um, in three half-hour sessions a week over 30 weeks of the kindergarten year. Um, so I first came across this program at an INSEAD reunion where I met the, um, the founder of Think Equal, who's an amazing woman called Leslie Udwin, and she had been a film and documentary maker and she had gone to India after the rape and murder of the medical student on the bus in 2012 um, to make a documentary about what was going on there. And as you, you might remember, all the protests. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as a documentary manager, she said, I've got to go over there. So she managed to get herself into jail, which apparently is almost unheard of for a journalist, um, and got herself into jail and spent 31 hours in jail interviewing the rapists and trying to understand their psyche, why? How can how can people do this sort of thing to another human being? And she came out with the you know thinking, well, they they've got no compassion, no empathy. They think the girl deserved it. They feel no guilt. Um, and so she said, well, it must be their lack of education. They were they were all very poorly educated. Um, and so then she went and interviewed the rapist lawyers, and the rapist lawyers thought exactly the same thing. And one lawyer actually says. Um, on the video, on the film, the documentary, 
Um, if it was my daughter, I would do the same thing. I would, I would who did that thing. I would um, take her out to our, our farm. I would douse her in petrol, and I would set her alight in front of the family. Wow! And Leslie on the film says, "You don't mean that, do you?" And he says, "Yes, I do." And I mean, what the girl had done? She'd she'd gone to see a movie with the boy. Yeah. Um, and so Leslie then decided that, well, this is clearly not a lack of education problem. Maybe it's what the education is. And so she herself is a very intelligent person and she started researching education and basically came to realise that there's no program um, to teach social and emotional skills, so empathy, compassion, respect for others, self-regulation, uh, moderation of your emotions. Um, and so then she, the amazing thing she did is then get together world-renowned educationalists, psychologists, um, neuroscientists, and the neuroscience is very clear that you can, you can impact the way a person thinks, their neural pathways, most easily before the age of five. And so the time to change people's ways of thinking is, is before they're five, so two, three, four, five-year-olds. And so they then set about creating a program to teach these skills, this way of thinking, so so that I'm not scared of someone else, and I and I have respect for someone else, and I I don't um, I, I have the persistence to carry on and to the belief. So these these type just ways of thinking, um, and so so I I heard this story at my INSEAD reunion, and I went up to her after the uh, after the speech, the lecture, and said, oh, you know, what are you doing in Australia? And she said, well, nothing yet. And so I offered to. Um, to help us set up a randomised control trial in kindergartens in Australia, and which we did. So in 2019, we had 40 kindergarten classrooms, uh, half of which were teaching program and half were, were the study group. And we taught the program uh, to the children in the, in the treatment group. And then we did the analysis and had a, have now got a paper um, uh, available for anyone who's interested, which shows a statistically significant impact of the program on um, six of the eight psychometric measures that we tested for, so emotional regulation, um, emotional dysregulation, anxiety, um, uh, and you know, there's about eight of them. Yeah, and uh, what do you need to expand it in Australia? What, what, what are the important uh, elements? So, I mean, the thing with this program, it's incredibly cost-effective. It, it's, it will cost something like, Depending on how it's done, the thing, but you know, say a number four hundred dollars per per classroom in Australia. So we could have for less than ten million dollars, we could have it being taught in every single classroom in Australia, probably for five million dollars. Mm. And when you think about the Wagga hunting shooting range <laughs> rifle range getting five million dollars, I think as a taxpayer, I and mean, I'd rather have the government, or I'd like to have the government think that they could afford five million dollars to have pretty much every kindergarten classroom but teaching it um, think equal in Australia. So that's my aim. It's a not-for-profit. Um, and I'd love to hear from anyone, particularly in government, who'd like to help. Yeah. Though I must say Katie Allen is being very supportive um, and who's the member for, my local member for Higgins. So she's. Um, I've been talking to her a lot about it and she's very supportive of it. Um, but I think, you know, that it, it just... It needs some money is what it needs. Yeah, it's a great uh, call out. It sounds like an amazing program to really address some real issues that happen in, in schools unconsciously. You know, so many of these things are unconscious, aren't they? And I guess that's what the the um, documentary showed was that, yeah. uh, you know, there was no insight about the root causes of some of these things. So, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. And that's been the amazing thing in, in the study that we've run on with the children. I mean, the, the change in their behaviour is amazing. I mean, there was one little girl who the teacher would gather them around in a class and ask them to hold hands, and she'd look down at the hands beside, beside her, and if they were dark brown coloured hands, she'd put her own hands behind her back and not hold their hands. Three weeks after doing the program, she's ha- not looking at the hands, she's happily holding hands. I mean, it's mm-hmm. really small things, but it's concrete behaviour changes. Um, there was, uh, yeah, there was one, one boy who was um, sitting at the back of the class and had been the, this, this teacher's, it was the first time he'd been in her class, and they did a, 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 one of the exercises was drawing a picture using colour to show your emotions, and, and he did a picture in red, and then they talked about their, their, their picture, and, and um, he said to the teacher, this is my father, and I'm really angry with my father. And the teacher said to him, oh, are you okay? And he said he got up from the back of the class and came up to her and hugged her for about a minute, she said, and then he went and sat down. And then after the class, and this was the first day he'd been in her class, and so after that class she went and talked to the teacher of the other class who class he'd been in, and this is in May, so it's quite a long way into the year. And she said to the other teacher, yeah, has this little boy ever talked about his emotions? Have he, has, he, has he ever shown any emotions? Has he ever talked about his family? And the teacher said, no, never. Wow. And it turned out that there was an apprehended violence order against his father. Right. Wow. Just uh, stepping back from, you know, the, the not-for-profit you're involved there and you are the co-founder of a, you know, a successful business that's had lots of stresses and strains. You're also, you know, wanting to make a big difference with Think Equal. What do you do for self-care? Um, I'm a great believer in little things make a big difference. Um, so, I mean, you know, I have a morning routine where I get up and I drink two big glasses of water. Um, and you know, I, I, um, I try to, on the weekend, I go for, you know, long, long walks with friends. Um, now in lockdown, that's pretty much all I can do. Um, I, I believe that eating too much is a big problem. So I, I am a subscriber to the, um, uh, you know, the, the 16-hour fast and, and, and um, intermittent fasting I think is, is a great thing. Um, I think variety is very important. I think too much of anything is, is not good for us. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, and, and I think the burpee is a great exercise. So <laughs> I've only about six in a row, but I try, try and do um, burpees when I'm out working as well. Yeah, I um, both my wife and I also practice intermittent fasting, the 16-8, and we've even um, – tried a few or a few days on OMAD, one meal a day as well, which is a a little bit more extreme. But the the, the surprising thing I found was that eating nothing is easier than eating little things, little little bit, because, you know, the little bit of food stimulates your insulin, which then stimulates your hunger. And uh, we've always found it the very easy default, even when we've been on the holiday and broken loose a bit. you know, it's always been easy to return to, and uh, so we've really experienced the the benefit of that as well. I, I agree, but I, I do. I, I'm I'm not at all a subscriber, and you'll you'll expect me to say this, but I absolutely believe it that you know any sugar is is the same. Um, and I had an example exactly this week where um, we've got some builders across the road who are who are um, got a very big construction project happening, so they're always bringing us things over to to sort of help us feel better. And um, they, they gave us some coffee scrolls, and I had this coffee, some of this coffee scroll, absolutely delicious. 
and I just wanted more. Mm -hmm. And I thought, no, I'm not going to have any more. And I went and got a fruit juice and drank that and then, you know, one of my carrot tops and um, and that, that put away the, the craving. So there's something about white, I believe white flour and white sugar is, is just this, I don't know, it's like catnip to us, but it, it's, it's something that once you start eating it, you just can't stop. And to me, that the one thing to avoid in our diets is, is white flour and white sugar. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I don't worry at all about sh- natural sugars, but I do think um, dietary fibre is hugely important. Mm. Um, so for me, you know, for lunch, I'll often just have, a, you know, one of our fruit smoothies, lots of dietary fibre in it, um, and that'll keep me. I mean, I, I actually don't, don't really eat much more than that during the day, and then I'll just have a main meal. Yeah, that's... Um... It's it's really nice to find a way that's sustainable to eat sustainably and in a way that does you know help you maintain a wake a healthy yeah. weight so and feel better and feel better so uh, and and not be feeling you're driven by by cravings all the time it's, it's the worst feeling very much so so it's been eighteen years since uh, you and Tom launched the business have you had many disagreements in that time. Um, I think when we started the business, we um, we said to each other that there's there's three things that um, is important in a in a, a business partner, um, and that's that is trust, respect, and a shared vision. Um, and I think you know the the thing that we've always had is is found it quite easy to have. Um, we've always had a shared vision of where we wanted to go with the business, and we've always found it quite easy to get on the same page when we discuss things. We um, you know, we usually are similar, thinking quite similarly about things. Um, but yeah, you, you're this, you know, it's like a marriage. It's like I have a you know, second husband. <laughs> so, what happens when, you know, you do have a disagreement on how things are done? How do you, how do you resolve that? Well, I think the only way you can is to talk. Mm. And I think, you know, things only go wrong when you stop talking. Are you familiar with the rom com when Harry met Sally? Yes. It's a a long time ago I watched it. (laughs) One of the the reason I know about this is my wife loves the movie, but, uh, you know, Billy Crystal's thing is that women and men can't be friends because the sex gets in the way. But uh, it seems like you've been able to make it uh, work for a long period of time, which is uh, sensational. Well, like I said, Tom has never been a partner in that way. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, great stuff. Where do you see Emma and Tom's going? Um, we, we, we really believe that there's a lot of opportunity for Emma and Tom's. I mean, we've created a brand that is, is trusted. Um, it's, it's, we, we know we can create fantastic tasting products that people like um, and we've, got, we've, we've proven we can do that in, in different, different types of products. I mean, obviously our core product is the, the fruit smoothies but we've, um, you know, we've got fantastic snacks that people love. We've just launched a range of sparkling unsweetened but naturally flavoured uh, mineral waters in a can, which um, we're getting fantastic response to. So, you know, we, we've got um, a great opportunity to do more products and we think, you know, really we, we've, we now, we've, we've built up this great base of um, through our own vans into the, into the cafe, the food service market, but we see a huge opportunity for us um, into the, uh, the more mainstream supermarkets um, uh, and, you know, we're doing a lot of work in that area. I mean, we hope that there will be potential for export market, um, particularly with this free trade agreement with the UK. Yeah. Um, and 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 maybe e-commerce. I mean, there. You know, I, I was talking to um, someone the other day, and they were saying that well, you know, in the food business, really, it's only pet food that people are doing much with in from a, a an e-commerce point of view. 
But, uh, I mean, drinks are quite heavy, and if we're selling drinks, I mean, it is possible that there's enough people that would like to get, um, you know, a reasonable amount of um, drinks home delivered, uh, like the old Tarex soft drinks used to be delivered. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, – I mean, it's, it's a big market. I mean, the the, um, the fruit juice market in Australia alone is $1.2 billion, so wow. plenty, of, plenty of opportunity. <laughs> certainly seems so. When you think about uh, the way you lead and the way you manage your business in, in day-to-day, have there been particular, you know, mentors or people that have really shaped the way that you do what you do? I think, I mean, uh, we, we, Tom and I write from the start. I mean, we're probably not enough from the start, but we we, we definitely, um, you know, believe that, you know, talking to a, a large number of people is hugely important. Um we, Kurt Leonard, who was my my was the managing director of Mars when I was there, he um, he's become quite a mentor to me and been super helpful. Um, Carolyn Creswell, she was on our board for uh, advisory board for quite a few years and was very helpful. A friend of Tom's, James Carnegie, um, and you know, but uh, but there's a lot of people that you know give you the, your time, their time very generously and and help. I mean, one of my best friends is. Um, is a fantastic director, and she she's always helping me. Um, so, you know, I've, I've, I think talking to people is 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 incredibly important. And and I, I used to think that there was that there was going to be one person that would give me all the answers. And I now sort of like the silver bullet. And I've we basically came to realise that there is no one like that. And yeah, you, you, as an entrepreneur, I mean, it's your job to work out, you know what are all the different pieces of the puzzle and, and get all those snippets of information and then you put the picture together and put so that it all makes sense. That's fair. That's, um, you know, it's really a collective approach, isn't it? And, and that's the reality. You know, you find things that work in all different areas of our lives. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up with you today, Emma. When you, um, I guess, if you had the opportunity to go back to your 20-year-old self, you may have been just uh, almost through your agricultural degree. And knowing what you know now and all you've experienced since that time, what advice would you give that uh, 20-year-old self? I mean, I do definitely think talk to a lot of as many people as possible, learn from as many people as possible. Um, I think doing things is is a great thing. I mean, the more you do you know, it, it's, it makes your life more interesting, um, you know, less sitting on the couch watching Netflix, reading trashy novels, <laughs> um, more getting out and doing things. Um, yeah. But, and you know, and I think um, and the friendships you make along the way is, is, is a fantastic thing, interesting people. Yeah. But, yeah, I think doing more, doing as much as you possibly can is, would be what I'd say to myself. That's actually been quite a common theme from um you know, other caring CEOs uh, interviews, you know, just having more faith in yourself, you know, just being confident that you'll be able to work it out. You know? so yeah. I, think, I think that's, a, that's a, a, very, a very common message. Thanks so much for being part of the show, Emma. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you, Graham. This is our last episode of the Caring CEO podcast for 2021, and we really appreciate your support. It's been an absolute privilege to interview 23 CEOs who champion a culture of care and high performance. We are incredibly grateful for their generosity of spirit. They have come from the private, public and not-for-profit sector 
and I hope you've found some valuable insights to implement. If you've found some valuable lessons, it'd be great if you could share them on social media. Some of our highlights include being rated 4.9 out of 5 in Apple Podcasts, having listeners in 35 countries, can't believe that, and being in Apple's top 10 podcasts in the management category. May you have a rejuvenating holiday and come back to 2022 with optimism and hope. We already have some fantastic guests lined up for you and look forward to reconnecting in early February. Have a wonderful break. 